Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. It is Wednesday. Oh my God, the 1st of March already. It is still dark outside, which be, should be your first clue that I must be speaking with somebody where the sun never sets. And you are correct. I am speaking with U.S. tax lawyer Virginia Latoura Jeeker, who, as you all know, is based in Dubai, and what we are going to be talking about today is, you probably know already, yesterday, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down its decision in the Bittner FBAR case, and on face value, the bottom line, the ruling was, Bittner wins, the U.S. government loses, meaning that if the government is assessing a civil, non-willful FBAR penalty, they are restricted to imposing the penalty on the failure to file the form, one penalty, and not a failure to file something in relation to each of the many accounts. So that's where we are, and I am pleased to have the opportunity to discuss this with who I consider to be the world's most renowned FBAR-ologist. Virginia Latora Jaker. How are you today, Virginia? Hey, John. I'm doing great. And um, I know that we're all kind of smiling over the Bittner case, but maybe there's some deeper thoughts that need to um, be explored. Well, that could be. That could be. Um, I mean, I think it's a clear, clear win for Mr. Bittner. And I think he deserves a lot of credit you know, as does his legal team for taking this thing on. Oh, yes. But, you know, if you read the decision, um, you know, there's a saying, a win is a win is a win. <laughs> but I'm not so sure how much of a win this really is. So I don't know. What do you think? Well, John, you know, in all fairness, I haven't really parsed through the opinion. It's 32 pages, and I just haven't gotten the time to really, really read it carefully. But I will give you my initial thoughts, and maybe we can exchange ideas. My biggest concern with this decision, while it was wonderful news for Mr. Bittner, and to a certain extent, yes, it's great news for Americans abroad, but my concern is that the IRS, well, for sure they'll be fuming. And assuming that things remain the way they are, that the IRS can always look to saying in many cases that it was perhaps a willful failure to file the FBAR and get them for 50% of the value of the account. Um, I, I am concerned that the courts in the past have given the IRS quite a bit of leeway to say what a willful violation of the FBAR could be. So we have this concept of willful blindness. We have this concept of reckless disregard. And, you know, the cases that we have seen so far, those cases have been pretty egregious facts when the taxpayer has, has not filed an FBAR. And, you know, one would think, gosh, it sounds pretty, you know, strong. They didn't have to say he would, had reckless disregard. They could have just said, hey, he intentionally, willfully didn't file this thing. They didn't have to go down the path of 
reckless disregard or willful blindness. Yet that is how these decisions came down. So what I'm concerned with is that going forward, the IRS can say, well, you know what? We just have willful blindness here. We have reckless disregard. And that's enough for a willful penalty to be asserted because that can be a pretty high amount depending what's in the account. So my concern is possible backlash from the IRS, if that's the way to put it. Mm -hmm. um, that's where I've gotten so far with my thought process. But I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on why this, in a broader sense, might not be such a great um, victory. Yeah, sure. Before we get to, to my thoughts on that, though, uh, I do agree absolutely with your suggestion that this is going to open the door to more, uh, you know, why don't we just do the willful penalty thing? And, and you know, and we talked recently about the Molyneux case, right? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, and that seems to me to be, oh, my God, you know, a, a, a pretty good example of that. Yes, they went straight for the jugular that it was a willful failure, and she only had signature authority over two small accounts. And so the penalties exceeded. had signature authority. So this was not, you know, a really egregious case. So we see them using this willful argument on facts that are less than, you know, horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in that case, of course, the what I think I think we would both agree the unfairness was compounded. Well, I I think it was unfair and it was compounded by the fact that the penalties asserted were so much greater than the balances in the accounts. Also, uh, yes, which I think was a huge problem. But we also have in that regard the and you know you've written about this a number of times the Cathalos case, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was another situation where, uh, you know, you know, they, they went after this on the willful basis, I think, because the last I heard on that case, I mean, I'm not sure if it's still kicking around or not, but I thought the issue there was there was going to be a trial on the issue of willfulness. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Now, I don't know what's happened. It could be they've settled yeah. the case. Uh, we, we will never know, but I haven't seen anything further on the Cathalos case either. Yeah, but the thing, the theme in, in that one, right, that comes through loud and clear is that willfulness uh, is a question of fact. And I mean, although I certainly agree, it's impossible that this decision could do anything but motivate the IRS to, you know, take the easier road, right? You know, just, you know, going, you know, asserting the willfulness thing, but that is going to turn it into a, you know, I mean, everybody's got to basically defend it on a question of fact and, you know, let the thing go to trial. I would think, you know, if, if they're too, if they're too outrageous with their penalties. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we certainly have that, but I will, let me tell you why, Although I'm very happy for Mr. Bittner and Miss Boyd, I think that this may be headed towards some very serious long-run problems. Okay, so these are just, you know, my thoughts, and I am not claiming they're correct or that they're even reasonable, all right? But they are my thoughts after having, you know, read the decision a couple of times, listened to the oral argument, and frankly, you know, discuss this case with you, you know, for a long time, right? In conjunction with our with our, our podcast and that. But 
So we have what appears to be a five to four decision. All right. The dissenting judges were uh, Barrett, uh, Kagan, uh, Sotomayor, and surprisingly, Justice Thomas. Okay. Now, the reason I say surprisingly is because, you know, I listened to the, uh, you know, the, the hearing while it was going on. I listened to a tape of it later. And I really had a strong sense that uh, Justice Thomas was offended by this whole thing and was likely to come down on the side of Mr. Bittner, but he didn't. Okay, so we have those four. Now, the other thing that surprised me was, for anybody who listened to the hearing, is I don't think that Justice Barrett said more than two words in the whole thing. Okay, I mean, it was incredible. It was, it was almost, you had the feeling she wasn't even participating. In the thing, but you know, Kagan and Sotomayor hot, entirely predictable. I mean, they stated flat out in the hearing that they regarded this as a per account, you know, sort of issue, and they were not going to be swayed. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, the other five uh, obviously were in the majority in the sense that they ruled that it was a per form thing, but the way the decision played out was very much restricted to how, given the language of 5314, which is the main creation of FBAR section, 5321, the penalty section, and the interaction of those two sections, just in terms of the text, the text, what was the best interpretation of it, okay? Now, I emphasize again that both all of the judges, all right, well, obviously had to, okay, and properly considered how to interpret the actual text. Five of the judges for, and I think Justice Gorsuch's, I mean, I, I thought Justice Gorsuch was very engaged uh, in the hearing, and, uh, you know, I thought that he might write the majority decision on this, all right, and, you know, it turned out, you know, it turned out that he did. But, I mean, it was it was a very, very well uh reasoned and written decision in terms of how to interpret the text itself. Now, there were three or four sections to Justice Gorsuch's majority. Now, they were laid out, for example, 2A, 2B, 2C, you know, this type of thing. And I think deliberately so, because what was interesting was that a section 2C was not joined by all right, Justice Roberts, uh, Kavanaugh, and Alito, all right, who are in the majority. Now, what was 2C? 2C reminded me, it was really Justice Gorsuch continuing uh, what he raised in the denial of the uh, Toth FR cert petition, right, where he's saying, hey, everybody, wake up. This is a gigantic problem, okay? Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he, you know, he was saying, "Come on, I mean, you know, fairness, due process, you know, these kinds of things." I think, you know, what we might say, rule of law requires that at a minimum, people need to understand what they're required to do or not do, right? At a minimum, and this is an incredibly unfair statute, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, it really was an extension of his. Uh, of the loan decision, right? The loan written justification and the denial of the Toth cert petition, right? Where Justice Gorsuch just continues his 
hey, what's up? You know, this is a bunch of garbage going on here. You know, this needs to be cleaned up. And leaving, and I think what he's really saying is leaving aside the correct interpretation of the statute in terms of the text, which we can all agree, uh, you know, is based on the uh, the perform thing. I want to go further. And, you know, regardless of the interpretation, there are serious problems here that need to be addressed. Now, on that issue, only Justice Jackson joined him. Okay. And that is where I see the real problem here. You can view this as a five to four win for Mr. Bittner in terms of the bottom line. But because seven of the nine justices specifically did not analyze this thing in terms of due process considerations, or just, you know, I mean, and people talk, I mean, do you have a right to even know what you're required to do or not do type mm -hmm. of thing? Because seven of the nine justices did not consider that aspect to this. And it, it pains me to say this, but I think that this is another reason why time may show this to be a loss for the taxpayer. Particularly because if you listen to the, the oral argument, there was all kinds of discussion of, well, you know, could Treasury change the text of the regulation, you know, to make it more clear if it was per account, right? You know, th this sort of stuff, right? And this is why, I mean, I'm very happy for the decision. Great win for Bittner. But I'm not so sure that this is a win overall. So I'll pause there. And You know, what are your thoughts on my thoughts? Yeah, you've given me a lot to digest, John. I think um, when you look at that section C, 2C of the opinion, and again, I haven't really fully read this. And certainly not um, analyzed it in any, to any great extent. But I think what Justice Gorsuch was saying is that we need to use this this principle of lenity. And under that principle, when you have a statute that's imposing penalties against the individual, you need to construe the statute strictly against the government and in favor of the individual. And so he's been looking at that, I think, in the broad sense of this FBAR statute and the regulations, et cetera. And I think the fact that he wants to construe it strictly against the government is telling us his view that there's a problem with this, there's a problem with this FBAR statute here but no one seems to want to agree with him on that and look a little bit deeper, like to widen their view beyond what you're saying, just let's construe the statute according to its text. And, you know, well, that's as far as we're going to go. Yeah. So there's, there's no acceptance of the, what I view as maybe Justice Gorsuch point that this statute has issues and, We've, in fairness to the individuals, we need to kind of construe it strictly against the government. I also noticed in certain places in the opinion, he had said something to the effect of there's no indication that Congress wanted such penalties to be applied for like these small kind of mistakes. Do you remember? Yeah, that? yeah, I, I think I agree with your 
with your your general reaction to it. I agree with that. Um, what I thought was very very interesting was how he went into. Uh, you know, I mean, he really seemed to, you know, dig into the purpose and, you know, what could he find in terms of, you know, the history of this thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which was all all very, very good. Um, I guess my feeling is we're left with a decision that basically says the government can do what it wants, uh, you know, in the sense that as long as we interpret the statute in that way. Right. You know, there is no restriction. I mean, our job is just to figure out what this statute says. We do not agree that in this case that this statute authorizes a non-willful penalty, uh, you know, based on the account. We don't agree. But if it did say that, we'd have no problem, you know, with this. That's at the, the bottom line. Yes, I think that's correct. And that's the danger, because that's what I believe Gorsuch was trying to get their heads around and they wouldn't give it, they wouldn't give that inch. Yeah. Another thing that I found interesting, you know, so, so with, with Justice Gorsuch, you know, this is now the third time in the last year that I've seen him sort of, you know, look out and say, Oh my God, you know, this is just, this, this is such garbage that it screams for some kind of judicial review. Right. You know, we saw it in the, uh, you know, the uh, the Puerto Rico Social Security benefits case, you know, where he says, oh, come on, this is rooted in these insular cases that are racist. If somebody had asked me to overrule this, I would have, but nobody asked me to. Uh, you know, and then we see, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not, you know, an expert or even close on this, but I, my general sense is that you know, when cert petitions are denied, they're just denied. No, we're not going to hear it. Not with some, you know, yes, it's denied, but some lone renegade judge decides to write a decision why he disagrees with the denial, right? Which is what happened, you know, in the Toth case. And here we have, and here we have him jumping out again in this FR situation in the Bittner case, you know, specifically. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the judge's conference, you know, they said, all right, so we're going to have to, you can write, you know, we think you should write the decision. But you're going to have to label this part as a separate part 2C because we're not going to join with you on this, right? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it was so well structured in that way. But another thing that, that struck me about the context that I thought was very interesting was when you read Justice Gorsuch's decision, he goes into the background. And on the, in the first couple of paragraphs, it's not the per first paragraph, he talks about Mr. Bittner. And he refers to him as a du dual American-Romanian citizen, okay? He um, then talks about the fact that these kinds of penalties are a big problem for immigrants in the United States and Americans living outside the United States. I mean, this is interesting, right? You know, he gets this stuff in contextually right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He also makes the point all right, I thought interestingly was that, uh, you know, this guy tried to commit, that, that these, these penalties were being assessed at a time he did not live in the United States, and the penalties were assessed after he tried to come into compliance. You know, he also makes that point interestingly, right? Yes. You know, and I think that this is, I think that this is important, uh, you know, generally. Now, in contrast, when we look at Justice Barrett's decision, I mean, honestly, I was shocked in the first paragraph 
She refers to him as an American citizen. That's it. You know, I mean, he could have been anywhere, right? Maybe he was in New Jersey the whole time. Maybe he was her neighbor in Indiana. I don't know. But he's nothing. He's nothing but an American citizen, right? Then most of these accounts factually that Mr. Bittner had were in Romania where he was living. Then she goes on to announce that these, these foreign accounts, he does, she doesn't say they were in Romania. She says he had, she had accounts in Switzerland and Liechtenstein, right? In other words, completely bypassing the fact that this guy was, you know, living outside the United States and Romania, et cetera. And then, uh, you know, and then right there, you know, it says, and he had as much as $16 million. I mean, none of these things are, are have anything to do, you know, with the issue that the court is trying to decide. But, you know, um, it really seems to me that, You know, it, it suggests to me a rather insular view of, of the FBAR law and the context in which these situations arise. But this is bad, okay? It's very bad because, you know, she was not, Justice Barrett was not writing for herself. Justice Barrett was writing for Sotomayor, Kagan, and Thomas. That's four. So, you know... I mean, yeah, win's a win's a win. Five to four is a win, and, uh, you know, and, and Bittner should be congratulated for his victory. But I have a lot of trouble seeing this as, uh, you a know. A long-term win. Big victory. Yeah, a long, okay, a long-term win. Well, time is going to tell, John. Time is going to tell uh, how this goes. But I think the IRS backlash will be, will be seen to a certain extent. And... I think, I think what you're, you're saying is the the coloring of the court view there is not looking very favorable. Like we're not having a good long term view. I think that's and, right. I, I think that's these that kinds of situations right. for Americans abroad, for people with different nationalities who just also happen to be American citizens. Well, what was striking was well, he's an American citizen. I mean, you know. I mean, that's uh, sort of, I regard that as, uh, hey, you're American. You're nothing else. You're American. Right? And, you know, and that that I thought was, you know, was very, very... The law has historically always been, if you look at the various things we have seen over the years, and you and I have practiced for many years, that has been the view from, you know, the IRS point of view. We're seeing it at the Supreme Court level with some of the justices. Um, if you think back to the first or second versions of the OVDI, where they had the penalty structure and said, if you were an accidental American, and that was pretty much defined as you kind of didn't know you, you just learned you were an American citizen. How could that be that you just learned you were an American citizen? That's another issue. But you can enter this OVDI and you can only, you will get a reduced penalty. I forget what the reduced penalty is. 5%. It was 5%. 5 on the value of all your offshore assets. This is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, let's give that some context because you're absolutely right. So, you know, let's say that, 
you know, you're a dual citizen in Europe or something, and you have a, a pension and you have, uh, you know, an investment account. And let's say you have a, a million dollars in that. What they're saying is, I mean, this is shock. It is shock. It shocks the conscience. What they're saying is if you didn't know you were an American citizen, or if you didn't know that you had to file, tell you what, give us $50,000 and we'll make it go away. I mean, that's what they're really saying. That's right. I mean, eventually they, they got rid of that. Maybe, I don't know, there was pushback. I don't know. But that eventually that went away with the second iteration of the OVDP. Yeah. But the point is, they had no concept of, gee, someone could be an American citizen, but truly have no idea they were one until... Something happened, like the bank notice, whatever. Um, well, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. But I think that there's another component to this, which is, um, you know, it's irrelevant to us that you're a dual citizen, right? You know, even if you know you're an American citizen, right? It's irrelevant to us if you're a dual citizen. Uh, I honestly... My after I read it a second time and you know began to digest this, I think that this decision may be one of the biggest arguments to renounce as quickly as possible. You know, for those who uh, uh, you know are, are are you know clearly not going back to the United States to live. I mean, I just you know it's a great win for Bidner, but it is you know I mean if you agree with me, I mean they're you know they're obviously these are just you know this is my thought on this, but. You know, I think it's I very think valid thoughts, definitely um, to be considered. You know, now on a more practical level, you had raised, um, I mean, you made, you made a couple of very, very interesting points in the last the last day or two on this. Uh, I'd like you to comment on these. The first was in, in your first post that you wrote, you know, I think within minutes of this decision coming down, um, I was very interested in your, your pointing out that, you know, you mentioned the OVDI and OVDP programs that a lot of people had been sort of uh, induced to enter those because of a fear of, uh, you know, per account penalties. That's what you were saying, right? Well, the clients that have come to me over the years, that was their one of their hugest concerns was, gee, if I don't go into this program, and they hit me with $10,000 per account for six years, oh, my God, I'll be done. Right, right. And, you know, interestingly, only, only somebody who either practices in this area or who has directly been impacted by this could even begin to understand that as a fear, right? Yes. Because absolutely. even at that time... If I'm not mistaken, the, you know, the uh, sort of uh, information for public consumption from the IRS was a presumption of a per form penalty, I think, even at that time, wasn't it? Or am I wrong on that? Or we don't know. I can't remember. And I don't think it was crystal clear at all. Well, it's clear. Yeah, it was definitely not crystal clear. That's for sure. Because there was a lot of fear on that, right? Yes, and I, I think at some point the IRS jumped on the bandwagon, I think, and clarified, well, for us it's per form. 
I'm not per form, per account. Yeah. I think at some point they made that, like maybe it was in the calculations of what could happen if you didn't join OBDP. Or yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. Sure. As I remember, then they were like, oh, well, if you didn't and this happened, you would be hit with that. And th then it was per account, as I remember. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember reading all kinds of horrific things, uh, you know, at the time on that. Um, you know, you had asked the question, I think, in a later thing you wrote, uh, would the people who've, who've paid uh, per account penalties now be entitled to a refund? It's a million dollar question. I think, Probably, should, I think yes. I think they should be suing. Uh, man, I think they should be too, but I don't know that they'll win. I, I have a blog post on that, which goes through a bit of the legal analysis. Okay. That was one I did in July. So let's read that one again and we can revisit yeah. that question. Yeah, good idea. All right. Now, another question I want to ask you as somebody who I think still helps people with the streamline process. Um, so, you know, a, a predicate, of course, for being able to use the streamline process is non-willfulness, right? Correct. On, uh, you know, on, on, on both FBAR and, you know, on the whole ball of wax, I think, right? Mm hmm So, you know, your thoughts on this have caused me to have this question. Will this decision incentivize the IRS to take the position that more streamlined filings are, are don't meet the non-willfulness standard? Could be. Remember, at least in the instructions to streamline, they have given you some kind of quasi-guidance on what do they mean by non-willful. Negligence, inadvertence, or a good faith misunderstanding of the law, right? right. That, those are your three prongs on that. Right. So, I mean, I think if you've got arguments that you meet one of those, you'll be you'll be doing well. Um, of course, it's all a matter of fact. IRS may do some good digging to say you don't need it, but I am seeing fewer and fewer people go through streamlined. Most people have already fixed up their, their messes and are done. Uh, but yeah, we, I'm still seeing some that can probably use the program. Now, another another aspect of this that just occurred to me, it's like one thing always leads to the next, leads to the next. Let, I mean, let me go back to your suggestion that the IRS will now be incentivized to assert willfulness penalties, right, as opposed to the non-willful. So, uh, if there's a big account, why not? 50%? So, uh, reasonable cause is not available to willfulness, right? Correct. You know, and that, I mean, that's going to, at the very least, make it drag these things on a lot longer, uh, you know, and a lot more fear and a lot more pressure to settle. Because I guess what and happens that's, is... That's exactly right, John. People don't have the finances to hire professionals to fight these things when they know it's going to drag on. And so sometimes it's just easier to pay the penalty. And, you know, if people are doing that, hey, that's still a money grab for the IRS. So why not keep going? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, you know, from the point of view of, you know, the U.S. Treasury, I mean, 
F-bar like fact is really the gift that just keeps on giving, isn't it? It's been proven to be so. Yeah, I mean, you know, they could only, you know, I mean, you know, uh, I've been writing this series of uh, posts. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Canada has imposed uh, an underused property tax and it discriminates on the basis of citizenship. If you're not a Canadian citizen or permanent resident, you own a property in Canada, you presumptively have to pay this extra tax now, okay? Hmm. It's, I mean, it's, it's totally outrageous. But there's a congressman in uh, upstate New York, Congressman Higgins, who is fighting this and screaming about you know discrimination based on citizenship. He apparently doesn't understand the U.S. makes a living off that. But, but that said, but, you know, I got to think about this a little bit, and... I don't know any of these people personally, but it does seem to me that there's probably a lot of upstate New York residents with, you know, summer homes in Canada, right? I mean, why wouldn't there be, right? Mm. I was close to the border, but then I thought, I bet you all these people have Canadian accounts and they don't file FBARs. I mean, you know, why would somebody know about this stuff, right? I mean, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, John, we've got some interesting days ahead, and we will keep listeners and readers apprised. Absolutely interesting. So, what's your sense? Win? Not so much of a win? I mean, I, you well, know, you know last, night, last night, when the decision came down, last night, my time, I was very happy, but also very tired, and I just was like, okay, let me get this information out there so people know. I didn't have time to really think about these issues. Now, you and I discussing today, and I've had a chance to at least look more carefully at the opinion, I'm seeing, yeah, you know what? Cause for concern. Yeah. Well, I'll be very, I know you're active on LinkedIn, and I'd be very interesting to hear and see, you know, what, what other people have to say about this. But I think it's, I think it's fair to say that it is a very clear win for Mr. Bittner, uh, not so much for the general public going forward. I also think there's a message here for Americans abroad generally, and that is that uh, you know, both the, you know, so to get this thing in the Supreme Court, you have to have the Fifth and Ninth Circuit decisions. Both of these concerned FR penalties assessed at a time when these were Americans abroad. Okay. So anybody who thinks that this is just restricted to, you know, U.S. residents is, I think. Ah, no, no, no. Yeah. No, no, no. They're That's in for right. a awakening. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Virginia, this has been great. Thanks for joining. Okay, John. Thanks for your thoughts. I appreciate them all, and uh, I'll give them more consideration as I keep reading the fine print of the opinion. Well, let's let's do another one of these after you've had the time to do that. You know, yes, I'll... and we can consider maybe the refund idea. Maybe we want to have a class action suit. Oh, why not? Why not? All right. Anyway, great. Thanks very much. Enjoy discussion. Pick it up again later. And yes, again, we will. As always, though, uh, you know, we talk FBAR. I immediately think of Virginia, who's got more analysis of FBAR than probably anybody on the planet. And where would people get the benefit of that analysis, Virginia? Right. They can check my website to be found at 
us-tax.org, O-R-G. I have a separate page listing all the categories under which my blog posts are um, categorized, and they can check the FBAR category, but I'm sure they'll find others of interest too. Absolutely. It's great stuff. My my favorite blog. Anyway, I've been reading it for years and years. Thank okay, you, Virginia. Thanks very much. Thanks, John. Bye.